0: It's uh, great to be with you and I'm going to be here for two weeks, then Colin decided you'd need a break from me at that point and then uh, I'll be away for two weeks and then back for two weeks. So we've got um, uh, really four weeks in this, this first chapter of Genesis. Uh, broken up by a, a two-week holiday, so that's that's where we're heading. There's an outline in the leaflet. If that's a useful thing for you, uh, some people find it's helpful to jot down notes or questions. Uh, please do that if you want. And uh, great to have your Bible somewhere nearby. Uh, but let me pray as we begin. Thank you, Father, for your great kindness to us. We pray that you'll be with us as we look at these these foundational. Um, opening chapters of your word, that you'll help us to understand who you are, who we are, and what it means to live in your world. We, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm really aware that when we come to uh, open up at this first page of the Bible, that uh, we enter into a world of controversy for many people. Uh, Immediately we find ourselves thinking about debates about creation and evolution. Uh, People are asking questions about how old the earth is. Are we talking about six literal 24 hour days or aren't we? And I know that uh, I come to a room of people and I, I don't know you particularly well, but I'm assuming that I have a room full of people coming at it from different angles. Uh, Some of you are trying, you know, hoping that what I'll do is um, refute modern contemporary ideas about evolution. Uh, Some of you will be thinking, gee, I hope he helps me understand how to put those two things together, you know, how creation and evolution, how those views connect. And then my guess is there'll be some people here this morning who, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Uh, And one of the reasons you're in that situation is because you don't think you could take on board the view that's actually put forward here at the start of the Bible about God as the Creator. That is, it contradicts your understanding of how science works, and so you you can't see a framework that allows for a Creator God. Now, can I say, these are not wrong questions to ask, you know, h- how does science and uh, creation fit together? But I want to suggest to you that they're misguided questions. They're not the, the best questions to ask when we come to this chapter. Let me uh, try and explain by an analogy. I want you to imagine that... Um, uh, so at Flinders University in medical course, the first year medical students are coming up uh, for their first semester exam in anatomy. Okay, how the human body functions, works, how it's constructed, right? And for the first time in the history of Flinders University, uh, Richard's very interested in this, retired doctor, right? They decide that what they're going to do is allow students to have an open book exam on anatomy, right, to take the big textbook into this exam. It would never have happened in your time, would it, Richard? No, definitely not, right? So taking this this open book exam, right? And all the students are there lined up for this exam all outside with, you know, the recommended textbook, which is, you know, 2,500 pages long, full of diagrams. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone's got it there. They're standing except for one person, right? One of the medical students, first-year medical students, doesn't have that book. They have a different book. They have this book, right? The Australian Women's Weekly Cookbook, right? Instead of the book on anatomy. And you know this person, this guy who's brought this cookbook along, and you rush up to him and you say, what on earth are you thinking? You know, bring a cookbook to an exam on anatomy, right? You should have the textbook. And this person looks at you with a knowing look on their eye and says, well you are what you eat, aren't you? Huh? And of course, you get that, you know that sort of what you eat affects the way your body forms and everything like that but of course it's a bit silly to bring a cookbook in to an anatomy exam. Now can I say when we come to the book of Genesis and you want to ask questions about the nature of evolution and science it's exactly the same problem. You're trying to squeeze Questions into this text that are not meant to be answered by this text. I'm not saying it doesn't have things to say about those questions, but they're not the primary issues that are being addressed. When you come to Genesis 1 and 2, what we're covering are much more profound questions, much more important questions. Right? Questions about who God is, questions about who we are, Uh, Questions about what God's world is like and how we should live in it. Questions about why this world is such a strange mixture of beauty and grace and glory and hatred and sadness and destruction. Those sort of questions are the questions that we're plagued with in this world and Genesis actually answers them for us. So rather than uh, impose our questions on these chapters, what I'd love to do is for us to hear what the Bible actually says to us as we address them. So let's try and do that. Uh, when you heard Genesis chapter 1 read, uh, what were your first impressions? You know, as you, I know most of you probably have heard it before or read it before, but as you read that, that long chapter and a little bit uh, at the start of the Bible, what, what are the sort of thoughts that occur to you? Maybe you listened and you thought, ah, oh, it's a bit repetitious, isn't it? You know, it all sort of goes over the same ground again and again and again with slightly different words. Or maybe you thought it's a bit boring. You know, the sort of, it's not very, or even childish. I mean, who starts off a great work of literature with the words, in the beginning? You know, like you know, you'd get marked down at school, wouldn't you, if you did that? Um, but can I say, it? While the, this part of the Bible is simple, it is not simplistic. Okay, and I want to just point out a few features, just a couple of features to alert us to a few things before we think about the content of it. As we read through that chapter, you would have picked up the use of the number 7 consistently throughout this chapter. Uh, In the Bible, seven um, represents wholeness or perfection or the ideal, and we heard it numbers of times. Uh, There are seven days. The first sentence uh, in the original Hebrew language has seven words. The second sentence in uh, this part of the the chapter has 14 words, twice seven. Uh, Seven is played on. Uh, We have... Uh, and God made seven times, uh, it was so seven times, it was good seven times, each of the days has a very careful structure. Uh, we have a command from God, like if you go to the first day there 's a command from God, verse three, let there be light uh, there 's in a fulfillment of that command. verse three, there was light uh, there 's in an explanation uh, verse four, the light was good. Uh, then you get to uh, the fourth part, which is the day formula. Verse five: there was evening, there was morning, there was the first day. The structure just sort of yells out at you as you go through. It's carefully framed and put together because it has a very careful message. If I step you back from that and ask you to think about what is the the big idea, you know, the the main point of this chapter and I gave you one word to tell me what that was, one word that's the big idea for this chapter, what would it be? Right. Before you disagree with me on what I'm going to say, what I'm going to get you to do is disagree with each other. Right. So just talk to the person next to you. You've got one word to describe this chapter. What word are you going to choose? Okay. You have. It's only one word, so you've got five seconds each. All right. So uh, go for it. OK. The, the big idea here in chapter 1 is not creation. Um, sorry, and I'm like, uh, who put up the hand creation? No, no, you don't have to do that. I'm not going to get you to volunteer. It isn't creation. It, it is actually God. Uh, that is the point. Um, he is the hero of this chapter. He's mentioned 35 times in these verses. I think there's a point being made here. It's all about God, 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 God. Uh, he's the subject of almost every sentence. So, what's this chapter tell us about God? Let's look at it together. Uh, we're told, like Sarah said with the kids before, He exists before anything. That's the way that that's the way the chapter opens. In the beginning, God, right? God. Uh, he's not created. He is there. God is there. Then creation is next. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, he brought the universe into existence. Uh, it just highlights his extraordinary nature. Um, with all the vastness of our technology, we are really only just scratching the edge of knowing what the universe is like. It's estimated... Uh, I, I this—I have it on good authority. I looked it up on Google. Right? The, um, <laughs> that there are, there are well over 400 billion stars... And over 170 million galaxies. Now, I just can't get my head around that. But we're talking about the God who brought all that, it, that into existence by a word. And this is the same God that creates the intricacy of a spider's web. Or if you're a scientist, you know, subatomic sequencing. This God. Like he just has his hand, his imprint on everything that has been made. It's no wonder the the psalmist says in Psalm nineteen, The heavens declare the glory of God. They scream it out. How wonderful is God. He creates he exists before everything. And everything is created for a purpose. As you go through this chapter, uh, you keep hearing at the end of each day, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then you get to the creation of human beings, and we're told in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, this is not a moral statement, good as opposed to degenerate or bad, but actually fulfilling a purpose that God has designed. In Psalm, not Psalm, Isaiah 45, Uh, We read these words. He who created the heavens and the earth, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He didn't create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Uh, All modern, orderly, scientific endeavour stems from an understanding of the fact that God created a world like that. We're discovering the world that God has created. It is orderly, structured, purposeful. But I also want to say, when it talks about it being good, the the creation actually reflects the very nature of God. Um, It reflects his generosity and his kindness, his love of beauty, and his desire just to lavish that on especially human beings. You can't help but pick that up. Now there's there's a flaw in this when you get to chapter 3 and uh, we see people rejecting that, that picture of God but at this point uh, this chapter in God's creative work signals God's good intention for people and his generosity in that sense. We move on. We hear that God creates by his word. It was great illustration, wasn't it? Sarah with the paper dove, right? Her, Sarah's words are really flimsy, to be quite honest. You know, she, She's not good at creating doves at all. Uh, but I think we can all own up to that. <laughs> but God, he actually creates just by speaking. Do you notice Genesis 1? There is not one scientific formula anywhere. God speaks. God says... And it was so. In the ancient world, the world in which Genesis um, chapters 1 and 2 and 3 emerged, this was a totally foreign idea. Right? The God who speaks and order emerges. The Babylonian creation story that they um, lived by, the Enuma Elish, it portrayed a view of how the world came into being as basically a fight between all the gods. Right? And uh, out of the carnage of this fight, the universe emerged. So from memory, uh, looking at a well, while since I studied the details, but from memory, the, under the enumerary, the way the, the world came into existence was, one of the gods got into a fight with another god with a sword, right? chopped off his head, and the head rolled away, and it became the earth. Okay. Now, isn't that such a sharp contrast with what you read here in Genesis chapter 1? God speaks and it occurs. Order, authority, control. And even by comparison with um, you know, modern scientific Big Bang theories, I mean, it's a real reach, isn't it? Uh, modern science reaches back into the past and looks at the way in which the world emerged and then it hits a wall and can't go any further, so it posits a spontaneous event that caused it all to happen. You know, can't think of anything else, let's try this one. (laughs) I've got no idea what's going on, let's go for this. Like, it's just the God of the gaps at that point. God speaks, and things happen. And then the other thing you discover, it's sort of implicit in what you discover here in chapter 1, is that all creation depends on God to keep going. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 17, Paul the Apostle is speaking to the Athenians, and he's trying to explain to this group that have no idea who God is, what he's like. And he says, God gives all men life and breath and everything else. Can I just say that right now, as you sit there, every breath you take is superintended by the God who created the world. Every beat your heart beats, God takes his hand off the world, and that's what happens. This is the creator God, who has made all things and sustains all things. That's what Genesis chapter 1 is teaching. Now, step away from that for a moment. I want to ask the so what question. So what? (laughs) Uh, We talk about the nature of the God who's made everything. What are the implications of what flows uh, from these truths? We've already seen that... uh, some of the, the comparable religious understanding of the ancient world. And can I say, in its time, uh, the biblical view was totally radical. Right? Every other world religious view of the time had a multiplicity of gods who ruled over all, all sorts of different aspects of creation and the world. There were the gods of... Um, crops. There were the gods of the sun, the gods of the moon, the gods of the ocean. The, yeah, Lots of gods everywhere running all sorts of different aspects of what happened. And into that context what you have is the Bible saying, no, 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 there aren't a stack of gods making a contribution. There is one God. Just one who rules over everything. And the way this is written emphasizes that point. There are two words used for God in these opening chapters of the Bible. Uh, when you get to uh, chapter 2, verse 4, uh, the word that's used for God there is the word Yahweh, or it's translated as the Lord God in your Bible. And, uh, uh, but before then, the word used for God in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, is Elohim. Elohim. Not Yahweh, but Elohim. Now the Elohim word for God is the sort of generic word for God and Yahweh is the personal word for God. And you might be thinking at this point, why am I getting all this detail, right? Uh, Let me explain it. In the ancient world, the gods all had names, Yahweh-type names. Uh, There was a Yahweh-type name for the god who ruled over the crops, Of the moon, of the sun, of the stars, of the Yahweh type names. But in chapter 1, the point that's being made is no, 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 there aren't many gods. There is the God. The God. And just in case you're really thick, right, uh, it's said 35 times. Who's in control of the heavens and the earth? The God, 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 Have you got the point? One God who rules over everything. Now, let me say, that was inflammatory in the ancient world, but it is just as inflammatory in our world. It really does cut across what is PC in our environment, The modern view of religion is that all people and all religions are essentially the same. Uh, They all talk about a God who loves people, their alternative paths to the same destination. All religions are essentially the same. And the problem is when you examine them, they're also radically different. And they have totally different views of who God is. So for example, Buddhism, that's supposed to be the fastest growing religion in Australia. It's working off a really low base. There aren't very many Buddhists around, but it still is apparently growing quite quickly. Now, Christianity and Buddhism, how similar are they? (coughs) Well, uh, Christians believe in the God who created the heavens and the earth. Buddhists don't believe there is a God. That would be a starting point. Um, Buddhists... I actually believe the key to life, key to enlightenment in this physical world is by escaping pleasure in order to soar. You've got to get rid of the idea of enjoyment and pleasure if you want to be fulfilled. When you come here to Genesis chapter 1, we have a God who creates a wonderful world and he creates it for enjoyment and for pleasure and he rules over it all. It's chalk and cheese and cheese. But even other modern views that aren't religious, uh, this just cuts right across it. So some of the contemporary views, atheism's become popular over the last 20, 20 years. People like uh, Dawkins or Hitchens or Strauss, um, Krauss, sorry, uh, have really propagated this sort of idea. And the view of these guys, these modern atheists, is that we're just random collations of atoms caught up in the slipstream of a meaningless universe. <laughs> we just Accidents who've happened and that's, that's basically who we are Sue and I went to the funeral of a friend, same age as us uh, just a couple of months ago now and at this funeral uh, we were told that the woman who had died um, believed that basically in dying she just returned back to where she had come from and she wanted her ashes taken to the place where she'd been born, so that they could be, oh, thanks, mate. Uh, they could be deposited in the place where she was born to bring to completion the circle of life, and that she wouldn't live on; she'd just live on through her children. Now you understand that's that's atheistic thinking that is tainted by Lion King theology, right? Uh, you, you get where that's coming from, don't you? Um, And that is the sort of the world view of atheists. Friends, that is so different to Genesis chapter 1. The God who creates, who gives meaning and purpose. The God who has created you intentionally. And actually, we'll come back to this next week. Uh, But has made you wonderfully at the pinnacle of his creation to be his representatives in this world. It is such a different view. And we could run the same scenario through things like environmentalism, um, you know, that where people, their God is the world, it is creation. It's, isn't that bizarre? To take your meaning from what's been created rather from the God who created it, who created us to rule over the world. It's, it's actually all wrong, it's back to front. But that's, you know... It cuts across totally that. Not that Christians don't have a lot to contribute to environmental thinking. like we know the God who made the world and His intentions for it. Of course, we'll have a lot to say about it, and a lot to and I think we've neglected our responsibilities there. But nonetheless, uh, God frames this so helpfully. Friends, Genesis is so clear. We do not get our meaning from collecting what's been created. I mean, that's a materialistic worldview, isn't it? That's the way our election has just been run, right? What's important to Australians? The economy, right? uh, Um, Franking credits, being able to own your own home. You know, I'm not against those things. What I'm saying is we don't get our meaning from those things. We, we don't serve those things. God has made us to take responsibility for those things according to his intentions, right? Well, we'll come back to that in due course. Friends, I'm just trying to lift the lid on what it means to believe in the God of Genesis 1 who made the heavens and the earth. And and I do want to say it will have implications for a world view that is based on an atheistic, biological, evolutionary perspective of the universe, for sure. It has implications as you think about that. But I want to say there are more foundational things, more essential things that this part of the Bible teaches us. It teaches us humility. Uh, Believing in the creator God is extraordinarily humbling. We aren't random accidents in the universe. We have been made by the God who rules heaven and earth. And he's extraordinary. Listen to Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, there's a beautiful picture um, that God creates the moon and the stars and puts them in place like we would do (laughs) cross-stitch. Isn't that a great picture of the authority of who God is? the moon and the stars which you've set in place, that picture of God. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This God who cares for you. I mean, that is, that is very humbling. It also means we're accountable. Uh, when you live in a world that belongs to somebody else, you understand that you are subtenants, and if you are renting a property off somebody, you know that it's not smart to trash it. The landlord's not normally very happy about that. We need to recognise that this is a world that is God's and therefore we come under his authority. And um, that's a struggle for us, I think, but that is reality. Right? Humbling, we come under his authority. But the point I want to finish on is this. Uh, this is a God that you can trust. Remember I talked about the fact that he's created a good world, a wonderful world, and that reflects his character? We need to keep taking that on board. Uh, I mentioned before that Sue and I have a number of grandchildren. One of our grandchildren, Ollie, is just um, over two years old, but I remember he was around at our place when he was just under two years old. We have a wooden staircase that is fairly steep. It's got about eight stairs, six stairs, and uh, Ollie just as always loved, like little boys do, climbing up things. So he always goes to those stairs and climbs up. Now, his parents, my daughter and son-in-law, right, they're very happy for him to do that. I'm sort of a helicopter grandparent, you know, I sort of <laughs> hover around because I'm a bit worried about what's going on, so whenever I see him going up those stairs, I generally you know wander over. Ollie went up there just short of his second birthday up the stairs, up the stairs, and then started coming back down the stairs, which is when I'm really worried, right? So I'm standing at the bottom of the stairs. Ollie goes around the corner on these stairs and sees me, right? And he gets this big smile on his face. And then he did something Ollie has never done before, right? He took two steps and jumped. (laughs) Like that. And I'm standing at the bottom of the stairs thinking, I didn't expect that, I didn't expect that, you know? And uh, now why did he jump? Right, apart from the fact that he's got my intelligence. Right? Um, <laughs> why did he jump like that? Well, there are two reasons. One is he thought I had the capacity to catch him, okay, <laughs> which was perhaps slightly misplaced, but I did catch him. Right? Uh, second thing is he thought I would catch him, he didn't think I'd see him coming in and step out of the way and watch him fall on the ground. You know. uh, he actually thought my heart was warmly disposed towards him in care and love. Friends, when, you, when you're confronted with Genesis chapter 1, what it presents us with is a picture of God that's like that. A God of immense and awesome capacity and power and authority that even exceeds mine as a grandparent. right? The God who made everything extraordinary. But also the God who is full of compassion and kindness and love and grace. In fact, that's the storyline of the rest of the Bible. Where God starts here in his kindness, we see it interrupted by Genesis 3 when people turn their back on God. But the rest of the Bible is all about God reaching out to people that he loves. It reaches its high point when the Lord Jesus, the one through whom the whole of creation came into existence, actually enters into this world to embrace us, but also to die for us so that we can be forgiven, to restore our relationship with God. Friends, this is the heart of the God of Genesis chapter 1. Immense authority but immense love. A God with unimaginable capacity, but a God that you can trust with your life. That God, that's the God we see here. We'll keep exploring that in the coming weeks, but let me pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are such a wonderful and gracious God. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are immensely power, you, powerful. You have enormous authority, and yet you don't wield it in a capricious or ungracious way. You do it with generosity. You do it with class. Uh, Father, we pray that we'll keep growing in our understanding of who you are, but also submit ourselves to you to know that you, you're the one we give account to. We're humbled before you. But Father, we pray that we'll trust you and just long more and more to know you and to delight in you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.